Welcome to Conversations from Here with me, Dana Ziegler. These candid, unfettered, and unedited talks create connection and inspiration across the human story. These are the sharings of how we came to be ourselves, how we found our life's purpose, and how we made it from there to here. I speak with performers, artists, artisans, creators, innovators, entrepreneurs, and other remarkable people about what they do and how they came to do it. Also, the music you hear on this show is performed, as always, by Brad Watson. Today I speak with Boston-born music journalist, author, editor, artist, and current Vermonter, Joe Milliken. We delve into Joe's childhood, his love of music, his early introduction to rock and roll, his time as a sports reporter and freelance music writer, writing his current book, Let's Go, Benjamin Orr and the Cars, and his founding of the website Standing Room Only to promote both local and national talent. Great talk and great stories. Here's me and Joe. Here. Hello there, Joe Milliken in Vermont. How are you? Hello, Dana in Los Angeles. I'm doing well. It's really great to be with you, and thanks for having me on your cool show. Absolutely. Well, you know, it's it was such a pleasure to. Uh, so, full disclosure, I've never met you before, and uh, and uh, our connection is uh, the the wonderful and epic soul that is Fusby Morse. And so that is, uh, that is how we became acquainted uh, because you, and we will get to this later in the talk, because um, I do want to talk more about your origins and beginnings, but um, you uh, most famously wrote a book about Benjamin Orr of the Cars. Let's go, Benjamin Orr and the Cars. So we'll talk about that later. But um, I wanted to, I know you're from, from Boston. <laughs> I'm originally from Boston, yes. But I wanted to talk to you a bit about, you know, like how you grew up and, and, uh, and how you, you, uh, you, you connected with music, how that began for you. Well, um, like you just said, I'm originally from Boston and um, I moved around a lot when I was a little kid. Um, my parents decided to get us out of Boston at an early age. And uh, <clears throat> my father was a Woolworth store manager and we transferred around a lot when I was a little kid. Um, but when I got to junior high school in seventh grade, um, he transferred a little north to New Southern New Hampshire, which is about two and a half miles, uh, two and a half hours north of Boston. And um, we really liked the area. So that's where we settled in. And uh, I've, I've always been into music all my life. Um, in junior high school, I discovered, I used to just pretty much listen to AM and FM radio when I was a kid, a uh, small kid. But when I got to junior high, um, I discovered rock and roll and rock music. And that sort of became my thing. And um, as you know, we had our little chat before this all, before this conversation started, um, my little joke is as much as I love music, I couldn't care. I couldn't carry a tune if it had a handle on it. So, so not being a musician, I had to find a way to um, be involved in music somehow. I mean, aside from just being a listener. And um, I've always been into writing and creative writing and journalism. And that's how I kind of got my foot in the door, if you will, 
um, in music, and that's writing about it. So that's oh, how who, I. Who were the, the people that you were listening to in in middle school that you were that you were you were feeling? Yes, these are my people. <laughs> well, I guess I'm going to give my age away a little bit here, but um, in middle school, uh, 1978. So I was um, 13 years old, and uh, that was when sort of the punk and new wave um, genres are starting to starting to spring up all over the place, like, you know, Talking Heads and yeah. Blondie, um, you know, and the, the punk movement, um, and of course, the Cars. Mm -hmm. So I was nine when that was going on. <laughs> Not well, much younger than you are. <laughs> well, we're, we're close in age then. Um, so yeah, um, so I was in junior high, and when I started hearing those bands on the radio, I started leaning more towards rock, and then I started discovering um, some 70s classic rock stuff like, you know, Aerosmith and Led Zeppelin and yeah. Pink Floyd, and then even back farther. So I have a joke where I say that um, I was born too late because a lot of bands that I loved had already kind of gone by by the time I started discovering rock, you know, like The Doors. Yes. And the Doors were already long gone by the time I discovered them. So, um, and Aerosmith is sort of my sentimental favorite band. Um, I sort of felt the connection with them um, because they were a Boston band when yes. I was born. And they actually got their start in New Hampshire yes. where I was living. Mm -hmm. So I felt that connection with them. And the Cars were another band like that. Obviously, they launched out of Boston. So mm -hmm. I sort of felt this little kinship with this Boston band the cars. Um, and, and also, uh, Steven Tyler still has, of Aerosmith, still has his house on Lake Sunapee. And he I does. I'll be there right now. <laughs> I don't want to be accused of being a stalker or anything, <laughs> but I, uh, not so much now, but back in my younger days, um, I made a few trips up to Sunapee <laughs> and took the little boat ride around, around the lake so I could see his house and so yeah, um, actually, um, most people obviously first mention Steven Tyler when they talk about Aerosmith, but uh, the guitar lead guitar player Joe Perry. Joe Perry, yeah. Joe Perry is actually like my favorite musician. Um, I just love the way he played, and I love the way he looked, and his guitars, and um, had a big influence on me uh, when I was a kid. So uh, my little phrase for Joe Perry is Joe Perry is my Elvis. Absolutely. Um, I mean, there's nobody who looks more like a rock star. I mean, other than Ben Orr, but Joe Perry is, is, is that when you think rock star, that's what you see. <laughs> oh yeah. That chiseled chin and those really that's cool guitars and hair all over the place. Right. I don't know how he maintains that, but to this day, he still has his full head of hair. Amazing. Hmm. Must be the Italian Hungarian in him. <laughs> oh yeah, sure. Yes. They maintain they, they are not follically challenged. <laughs> right. I'm not I have a little bald spot in the back, but that's not why I'm wearing a hat right now, but <laughs> Well, you know that okay. did you did you have any siblings who turned you on to music or whatnot? Because I have my brother is nine years older than me, so he's sixty and and I got to have all of his, you know, Dylan, the Beatles, the Who, Jethro Tull, all that stuff. So I got like what you were talking about before about, about you know, the th throwing back to the 60s and the mid 60s and the late 60s and the early 70s. 
the stuff that you were kind of too young to be listening to. And, and so I got all of that stuff as well, but it's an amazing, uh, it's an amazing, uh, uh, process of discovery, isn't it? Because you just go down that rabbit hole and you just find all these new people. Yeah, I do have an older brother who's, um, but we're pretty close in age. He's three years older than me. And although I will give him credit um, for having some rock albums before I did, um, so I would, I would steal some of his albums and sneak them into my room to play them. And uh, he started making money before I did. So I, he actually bought a couple albums for me when I was starting my record collection. Mm -hmm. um, but I got the fever a lot stronger than him. So once I started getting into music and going off in my own direction, I actually started turning him on to bands. And he started taking my albums and listening <laughs> to them. So we kind of helped each other out in that regard. <laughs> <laughs> did you did you particularly were you drawn to the Brits? Were you were you drawn to the Who and Jethro Tull and the Beatles and the Stones and all of that, or were you more American based? Nope, I definitely got into the whole British invasion thing. Um, even uh, well, not that they're not well known, but even like uh, Yardbirds. Yeah, absolutely. And the Kinks. Clapton. Yeah, yeah, Kinks. Yep. Oh yeah, yeah. All, all those guys. All those, I mean, of course, I you know. Again, you feel a kinship to these American bands, obviously being American. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, all those British bands. Um, you know, I love the Stones and the Beatles and that 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 whole era for sure. The irony is, is that those British bands were completely obsessed with our blues music, took that and then gave it back to us. <laughs> right. And also, and also the same thing with the Beatles and, you know, their skiffle music and they were influenced by Americans again. And then they, they sold it back to us, you know, and they did it so beautifully. And yeah. uh, it is ironic that some of those British bands loved the American music and, you know, like you just mentioned, the blues, while the American rock bands were obsessed with the British bands, you know, Aerosmith. You know, they were accused of being, you know, the American Rolling Stones for a while. Yeah. So it's funny how, you know, the British love the American stuff and the Americans love the British stuff. And it just kind of weaved together like that. That's I interesting. Think, I think part of it is that there's always the romance of the other. And for, for British bands, and certainly Eric Clapton talked about this, about how American blues, specifically Delta blues, Muddy Waters and all those folks, um, represented freedom. And for him, you know, as well as all these other guys, um, you know, the Zeppelin guys and the Tull guys and the Stones and the Beatles, they were post-war people. So there they are growing up in depressed post-war Britain and they're looking for a source of light and they look towards America. And then Americans look towards Britain because we think they're so cool. <laughs> you know? That's what I want to be. Yeah, right? exactly. No, that's what I want to be. I want to talk like this, like Keith Richards, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you mention that because a lot of the people I interviewed for the book or some of the people I interviewed for the book um, who knew Ben when he was young, um, you know, years before he ever joined the Cars, um, Ben used to do his own little British accent. And they said for a while he would do that all the time. Like, I'm a Brit now. So I <laughs> guess Ben got pretty good at doing that. So it's funny you mentioned that. <laughs> he wanted to be Mick Jagger. What about you, mate? <laughs> <laughs>
That's you do funny. that. You do that way better than I could ever think of. So I'm not even gonna try. <laughs> well, thank you. Well, so um, so okay. So we got your we got your uh, your teenagehood, your 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 burgeoning high school years. You're getting more into music, and then did you start? Because I know you really started as a journalist. Um, and, and as a reporter, what what uh, what areas were you in, and how did you seg into music? Well, um, when I was in high school, um, I'm also into art, and I, I call I call myself now a frustrated art student because um, in high school, you know, I went to a pretty small high school in New Hampshire with not a lot of kids. Um, and I was a pretty good artist in high school. Like outside the art room, they had the case where you know the best um projects of the month or whatever would go in the case and i got a lot of stuff in that case so i didn't really know uh leaving high school what i wanted to do and my dad said well you love art why don't you go to school for art and be an art student um so that's what i did and the little story i tell about that is i can remember being a freshman art student um at a junior a small junior college in massachusetts outside of uh, boston and we did our first projects and when you finish a project everybody brings it to the class and you put your project up in front of everybody and it gets critiqued well i'm sitting there and i mean there's literally only about 30 art students or so it's a really small class and i'm looking around the room going okay every single person here is better than me at art <laughs> so i'm not sure if i'm gonna make it in this field um, but I got through it and got my art degree. Um, but I, I really, though, I didn't think that I was going to, I mean, that's a very competitive market anyway. So you have to be pretty damn good um, to make it as a professional artist. Um, so about halfway through college, I start, I was, you know, legitimately starting to realize that I better start maybe looking for something else I can, I can, I can get into. And I was always into creative writing and journalism. And I was taking journalism classes in college as an art student. So writing became my creative outlet. Um, I still didn't have aspirations of necessarily being a professional writer, um, but that's how I started getting into it. And um, after I got out of college, I started working at a newspaper, but I, I was in advertising sales, mm -hmm. uh, but I would see while I'm in the office all day trying to sell and peddle ads on the phone, I would see these writers, you know, checking in in the morning, but then getting to leave all day and go out and do these stories about all these interesting people. And that kind of sparked the interest for me. It's like, hmm, why am I trying to peddle these ads when I could be writing these cool stories about people? I could be out there having fun. <laughs> yeah. So that's how I, you know, in a nutshell, that's how I ended up becoming a writer. Um, I started out as a freelancer, writing for a couple of um, weekly and daily newspapers in my area. And um, then it started leaning towards music journalism. And uh, that, you know, I still write for a couple of local papers in my area, write about local business and um, business profiles and things like that. But I really do consider myself a music journalist and most of my writing revolves around music. Um, mm -hmm. I did get a full-time job as a writer eventually. I was a sports editor at a weekly newspaper. Um, so in the morning, I'd go into the office and all the press releases that would come in the mail, I would turn those out and turn them into little stories. 
And then in the afternoon, I would look in the daily paper and see where the high school games were going on. In the afternoon, I'd go out and cover games and take photos. Um, I also got the right to the, for the arts and entertainment section of the paper. So I was doing sports, a combination of sports and music. Yeah. Um, and then I started landing a couple of um, assignments for uh, music publications. And the main one I like to mention is a monthly publication called Goldmine Magazine. Um, it's a music collector's publication, but you know, it's full of feature stories. And I started writing for them and uh, was doing my full-time sports editor thing. And then I finally decided that um, it was time to take another step and pursue writing a book. And that's where I am now. Um, I had a short list of ideas that I wanted to write about. Um, wasn't sure which. I knew it was going to be music related, though. Mm -hmm. So I came up with this short list of ideas um, to, to start writing a manuscript. <clears throat> and you probably would have eventually asked me this question, so I'll just put it out there now. Um, people ask me, you know, how did you decide to write about Benjamin Orr specifically? Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, it really happened by chance. Um, now, this is now um, early 2000s, or no, mid-2000s, um, back when the original social media MySpace was around. Mm -hmm. So I had a MySpace page and, you know, I listed myself as a music journalist. Some of my influences, I listed a bunch of bands that I love and said I was a music journalist. And a random Cars fan saw my MySpace page and she contacted me and right out of the blue said, why don't you write a book about Benjamin Orr? So I asked the same question. Well, I love the cars. The cars were not on my short list of ideas for a book, though, as much as I love them. It, they just weren't on my list. So I said, well, why wouldn't I write a book about the cars as a band? Or if I was going to pick an individual, why wouldn't it be Rick Ocasek? I mean, he's the front man of the band and the main right. songwriter. And in which case, she said, why don't you just investigate Ben and see what you think? So that's what I did. I investigated Ben and I started finding out all these cool things about him. I mean, obviously I knew him as, uh, you know, the good looking rock star of the cars dressed to the nines and, and looking real cool and that blonde hair of his. Yeah. Um, but when I investigated him, I found out that he was originally from Cleveland, mm -hmm. which is the home of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yep. So I thought that was cool right there that he's from, you know, his hometown is the Midwesterner. <laughs> yeah. And so I thought that was cool. I investigated a little bit more. And this woman who had asked me about this, she wanted someone to write a book about Ben, but she wasn't a writer herself. And she had actually done a little research and came up with a couple of names of people, other musicians who knew Ben. So I contacted a couple of those guys just to tell them what I was doing or I was looking into Ben and they started telling me some things about him. Uh, one of which was that he was a, a teen star, if you will, in Cleveland. Um, always wanted to be a musician, never wanted to do anything else. Um, he started out as a drummer. Um, you know, everybody knows Ben as the bass player of the cars. Right. But he was a multi-instrumentalist. He like got his first drum kit when he was 10. 
and he caught the fever right away. And this is around the time when the Beatles were hitting. And um, he wanted to be a musician. That's all he ever wanted to do. And um, he actually, as a sophomore in high school, quit school to become a professional musician. So I thought that was really interesting that this guy had the music fever that much that he was willing to quit yeah. school. And his parents were willing to let him. I mean, he did That's it with his parents' That's actually more surprising right there. The fact that his parents were encouraging of that. They really were. And, you know, I think, um, you know, back in the 50s and early 60s, I think it, it probably was a little more common. You know, some kids did quit school, you know, to help support the family and get a job. You know, nowadays, you know, you'd look at somebody like they have three heads if, you know, your your kid was going to quit school as a sophomore. It doesn't happen now. Right. I think back then, though, it probably wasn't quite as crazy sounding to, to quit school. But yes, his parents encouraged him. So I thought that was really interesting. And then I found out that he was in a band when he was 17 years old. They were called the Grasshoppers. And this band appeared on a music television show that was based in Cleveland called Upbeat. And Upbeat was sort of like the Cleveland version of American Bandstand, mm -hmm. where they would, they would bring in national artists to either sing or lip sync the hit of the day. Mm -hmm. uh, but what made Upbeat a little different was they had house bands behind them. So when they would segue in and out of commercials, the house band would play music. So the, the producer of Upbeat, they would go into the city of Cleveland and find local bands to be the house band on the TV show. Mm -hmm. And Ben's band was chosen to be a house band on Upbeat. So I'm thinking, here's this 17-year-old kid who quit school to, be a to try to become a professional musician. And here's his band on Upbeat, and he's so young. And uh, I just thought that was really cool. And actually, that is what, that's what hooked me. That's when I said it wasn't, it didn't really, I mean, of course, the cars played a part of it being famous in the cars, but his early story and the things he did early in his life, that's what made me think, man, I got to tell this guy's story. This is unbelievable. Um, and that's kind of how it happened. It happened by by chance, <laughs> really. Well, his story is so inspiring because clearly here is somebody who, despite his age, was very, very clear about what it was that he wanted to do. There was no question, and, and that his parents, who, you know, obviously would know him better than most people, were like, oh yeah, that's, that's what he needs to do, and then allowed him to do that. Yeah, um, it, it was, I thought it was a pretty amazing story, and I interviewed a lot of people from his early life and they all told me the same thing that that is all he ever wanted to do. Um, I also really thought it was cool. The fact that he was a multi-instrumentalist. I, I told you he started out as a drummer, you know, mm -hmm. when he was 10 years old, he was taking uh, drumming lessons and then Ben could adapt to whatever his band needed. So when he was with the grasshoppers, by then he was playing guitar and singing, and he was the front man to that band. And then, of course, as you know, later on, when the cars eventually formed, they needed a bass player. So mm -hmm. Ben said, okay, I'll play bass. So he was really amazing in the fact that he could just adapt to whatever his band needed at the time, and he had the talent to be able to do it. Well, and also that voice, that voice of his is, is incredible. It's so powerful, and it's really, and he can do, he, it's got, he's has, he has a lot of range. 
And, and the other thing that Rick Ocasek actually said about him was that they could sing in the same, because obviously they sang, you know, different songs are sung by Rick and different songs are sung by Ben, and that they could, you know, sub for each other pretty seamlessly. Even, yeah. even though Ben's voice was really a, a much better singing voice, but they were in the same range. Yeah, they were in the same range. They did have kind of different styles. I mean, Rick, Rick ended up singing like the more quirkier kind of songs by the cars and ben was more of a smooth crooner yep. kind of voice if you will um but rick knew uh, uh rick is rick um said in an interview once that um whenever he wrote a song that really needed a serious vocal mm -hmm. that was ben's to sing uh, but yeah ben's voice um to me he's one of the iconic singers ever in rock i mean to me he's right up there with you know, Paul McCartney and David Bowie and mm -hmm. Paul Rogers of Bad Company. Um, to me, his voice is, that's really his true calling. Um, as a vocalist, he's just, mm -hmm. he's just out of this world. He really is. Well, and, um, and another, a, a good example of that, of him doing kind of a croony ballad thing is Drive. Of course. Of course. And that ended up, that ended up being their, their biggest hit. They never, I didn't, it's kind of surprised me when I, as I did my research and, and learned this, but um, they never had a number one song. Um, but Drive is the closest they ever came. I think Drive actually made it to like two or three. Um, so it didn't quite make it to number one, but that was their biggest, you know, international hit. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, uh, and of course, you know, Ben does a pretty amazing job on that. Um, another interesting tidbit about, you know, the whole Ben Rick vocal tandem thing. Um, when Rick wrote songs, he didn't have either one of them in mind when he wrote his lyrics. He didn't say, okay, I'm writing this song. Oh, this one's for me. Um, oh, this one's for Ben. Um, he wrote his songs. They would go into the studio to start recording sessions and they would both take a crack at it. And then they would both look at each other and kind of decide who should take that song in the actual recording of the album. So, you know, Rick, um, Rick didn't have a, a, a set plan um, when he wrote songs. He wrote the lyrics, he brought them into the studio. They both took a crack at it and they would talk about it and decide. And I think I would imagine that, I would imagine there probably wasn't too many arguments about it. I think they could probably get a feel for it right away. And yeah, you should be doing this one. Um, so it, it was really good teamwork, I thought. You know, Rick, Rick kind of, well, I mean, if you're a rock star, you got an ego. <laughs> um, it's, oh, yeah. You know, for the most part, it's just the way sure. it is, you know? And I think Rick was like that, but he never let, they never let egos get in the way. Um, and a lot of times I would be asked questions like, um, people would ask Ben, you know, what do you think about, because Rick wrote all the lyrics for all their songs. Um, when they would go into the studio, the other guys in the band would have input, of course, in the music part of it and be able to give their two cents and their ideas, but all the lyrics were written by Rick. And Ben has been asked about that and he would say, um, you know, I've got no problem with Rick. You know, that's what he does and he's obviously pretty damn good at it. So you write the songs and I'll sing them. So they really had good teamwork and there wasn't a lot of headbutting or anything like right. that going on. They were a team and um, obviously it worked out pretty well for them. 
Well, yeah, because when you don't have that that friction or, or antagonism, you know, then it's, it's like the joke about how, you know, if you ride the bus well, you stay in the band. <laughs> you know, like if you, if you get along well, you know, and then so then then there can be a really synergistic um, thing that happens where, you know, you've got a harmonious relationship. You're, you know, you, you know what your job is and you do it well and you compliment everybody else. And because um, their their first album came out in 78, right? Their debut was 78, Correct. right? Yep. And then uh, and then Candy O came out when? Was that the second? Uh, 79, the, the very next year. Wow. So many hit so many hits off of off of both of those. Yeah. Well, you know, um, Rick, Rick was definitely the leader of the band. Um, but him and Ben, you know, um, Rick is originally from the Baltimore area, but when he was young, in his early teens, his family moved to Ohio. Um, his dad got transferred there through his work, and Ben and Rick met each other because both of their bands were kind of in the same area, playing the same play clubs and stuff. They're almost like competitors early mm -hmm. on. And then one night they met at a party, um, or they, they actually kind of knew each other already, but one night at a party, they really got to sit down together and talk. And the story goes that they were in the basement of this house and there were some instruments around and Ben picked up an acoustic guitar and sang a Beatles song. Mm. Um, and right then and there, you know, Rick is quoted as saying that it was the most beautiful voice he had ever heard. And they decided to be a team right then and there. And that's what they did. Um, but, you know, it wasn't an easy road for them. Uh, they were the starving musicians for quite a long time. They traveled around the Ohio, Michigan area playing dive clubs. And, you know, um, there's a, a little part in the book where I talk about how they, at one point, they were so poor that they were living off uh, containers of goldfish crackers. <laughs> Oh, those Pepperidge Farm goldfish, yeah. Yeah, their, um, their early manager um, I interviewed, and he told me that they were all eating goldfish crackers. Um, they would play a club or a restaurant, and the restaurants would have the industrial size containers of goldfish crackers. Wow. And that's how they were eating, for crying out loud. So they toiled for a good 10 years before they eventually gravitated to Boston and finally started gaining some momentum. Um, another thing about Rick, you know, usually I, usually the general formula is, you know, you find some guys that you want to be in a band with and you start playing together and then you start writing songs together. Well, Rick kind of came from another angle because he was a songwriter. He would write his lyrics and write his songs and then go try to find musicians mm. that he thought would fit into the songs he was writing. Mm -hmm. So early on, he was constantly throwing people out of his bands, ditching songs when they weren't uh, catching fire with anyone, writing other songs, bringing in other musicians. But Ben was the one guy that always stuck. He knew enough and knew that Ben was talented enough and that had that voice Ben survived all of Rick's 
throwing people out of bands and writing a whole new batch of songs. So those two guys were together for about a decade before they finally eventually ended up in Boston. Um, so they were, they toiled for a long time before they actually, you know, caught fire in Boston. And they actually, before they were the cars, before they, formed, they brought all the other guys in, they were Richard and the Rabbits, right? Wasn't that the band that was pre-Cars? The one that our friend Fuzby was in? Yes, Fuzby was in Richard and the Rabbits. Thank God they got rid of that name, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Not a real winner. <laughs> no, I don't think that was going to stick. Um, but Rick, like they would, Rick was like writing songs depending on what was big at the time. When they first got into Boston in the early 70s, that whole... Crosby, Stills, and Nash acoustic, folky kind of sound was really big. So when they first got to Boston, Rick and Ben were actually a folk duo. Just the two of them playing acoustic guitars in these little clubs and bars. Um, and then they actually, their first album that came out um, was called How's the Weather? And uh, it was a folk style album. It was, the band was called Milkwood. I'm not quite sure how that came about either. Interesting. But. It's probably after Dylan Thomas, the Welsh poets, uh, uh, under Milkwood or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they did the acoustic thing for a while. And um, some diehard Cars fans really love that album. And God bless them. The more things you can like, the better. I didn't really dig it, to be honest with you. It was sort of, it wasn't a very interesting attempt at it. Um, so that band didn't last long. So then, um, you know, then I had mentioned earlier around 77, 78, that whole punk new wave sound was starting to become big. And the Talking Heads and Blondie, yeah. those bands were starting to appear in the charts. And the Pretenders, the Pretenders at that time. Ah, uh, yes. And the, Chrissy Hine, another Ohio girl mm -hmm. um, from, from Ben's hometown area. Um, so that's when Rick said, okay, let's get more back to a little more stripped down rock sound. He was a big uh, Velvet Underground Lou Reed fan too, that mm -hmm. minimalist rock kind of sound. Mm -hmm. So they had this band called Cat and Swing. And that was more, a, more of a rock band which started sounding, you could hear the cars starting to morph mm -hmm. when they were Cat and Swing, but it was a little bit more of a jazzy sound too, kind of like Steely Dan kind yeah. of sound. Um, and that's when they started to gain some traction. Uh, there is a famous radio DJ out of Boston. Um, she's, you know, retired now, but her name was Maxan Sartori. And she was a DJ at WBCN in Boston, which is the main rock station in that city and one of the famous rock stations in the country. She went to a club one night and saw Cat and Swing, and she really liked them talked to the guys afterward and got a demo tape that they had recorded. Now, back in those days in the 70s, DJs had more freedom to play things that they wanted to play. If they found a new band that they liked, they could put it on the air. You know, today, radio DJs aren't allowed to do that. Right, Here's right. your formula and you follow it. But back then they had a little more freedom. So she put Captain Swing on the radio and it got a little bit of airplay. And that's how they started to gain some momentum and then I told you earlier how Rick would write a bunch of songs and if they weren't working, he would get rid of them and start over. 
Mm -hmm. Well, although he liked the Captain Swing sound, they were still a little kind of jazzy feel to them. Mm -hmm. So once again, he chucked a couple of guys out of the band, scrapped all their songs, and that's when he wrote the whole first album all at once. Wow. He went into his basement. I think there was, um, there was one or two Captain Swing songs that survived that made it into the Cars repertoire. But for the most part, he scrapped all the songs they were doing and wrote this whole new batch of songs all at once mm -hmm. in like a month's time, which ended up being that first album. Wow, what, that, just, that amazes me. <laughs> I was just gonna say, what, what, um, do, you, do you know what, what two songs were the Captain Swing songs that survived that became Cars songs? The one that sticks out is um, Just What I Needed. Oh yeah, uh-huh. And uh, you can actually hear some, there's some Captain Swing demos and stuff floating out there. And uh, if you like go on YouTube and YouTube it, you can actually hear some of these songs. And it's definitely, it definitely morphed into something a little different by the time, mm -hmm. by the, time the cars did it, they made it a little more rocking. Um, but yeah, it, it amazes me that this guy actually wrote one of the most classic rock albums ever in just mm -hmm. this one short span of time. Oh yeah, I'm gonna trash all these other songs I've been working on and I'm gonna write a new batch. And he had that Velvet Underground stripped down, more simpler kind of sound that he wanted to capture. Yeah. And he wrote that album all at once. They recorded some more demos. Max Sand started putting the cars on the radio. I mean, they were getting radio play before they even got a record deal. Um, so that was, that's another thing that doesn't really happen very often. Right. Um, you, 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 you land a record deal and then you get on the radio. Right, right, um, right. I, I so. find it really interesting that, that all of this music happened. It's like, it's like it was downloaded from somewhere, you know, how it happened right. once. And that's the great mystery of creativity. How somebody, you know, Rick Ocasek, obviously, you know, a prolific songwriter early on. And then, but, but something about these guys and this and the um, and the time and his experience and everything culminated in in 1978 in this album, which was yeah. mind blowing. You know, I think I, I think every song on that first album has found its way to classic rock radio yeah. in the entire album, and there were actually a few leftover songs from those sessions that didn't make it on the first album that mm -hmm. ended up being on Candy O, their second mm -hmm. album. So he wrote all these iconic songs in such a short period of time. And uh, obviously from there, the band just took off. Um, first in Boston, then they started branching out and doing shows in New England. And um, I guess it took about a year or so for them to really, after the album came out, for them to really break it national as in across the country it kind of started in new england and they eventually branched out but they did it the old-fashioned way they just went on the road and they yeah. started by opening for other bands worked their way to the west coast and by the time they came back they were headliners and so it really happened fast for them it really once they got their foot in the door so to speak right i told you how they toiled for a decade before they actually made it um, once they got their foot in the door and people started digging them, it all happened really fast for them. It's interesting because there's another Boston band that's well known, Jay Giles Band, which yeah. which, which which kind of they they broke out a little bit nationally, but they really kind of more stayed a regional 
a regional band and it's so interesting to me like what what is that magic sauce that makes because i mean they were amazing oh and, yeah and they would play every show like a james brown show you know <laughs> like full on you know and, oh yeah they'd leave and, it all out on the stage that's for right. sure so um my my other is a huge jay giles fan and um, oh i love i love to play giles band. yeah it is weird that they were basically a regional band for a while but they were yeah. big in detroit <laughs> for some reason yeah i mean you never know. huge in detroit <laughs> it, it's so interesting to me why things why things really catch fire in certain places it's kind of like delta blues music american delta blues music hit it huge in the UK. And many of those artists went to Britain and, you know, to great success, much more so than here in the States. And, you know, certain places are kind of like ready and they're hungry for a certain sound and that sound lands there and, you know. Yeah. Becomes you know, something that's interesting about the cars, for as big as they were in America, um, and I'm not going to say they didn't have success around the world. Um, that's certainly not the case. Um, but they they didn't really catch fire um, in the UK when their first album. As a matter right. of fact, they only went to Europe once in their career. They basically toured in North America. They were, you know, obviously big in the U.S. and they had a big following in Canada. But they didn't. They weren't a world touring band um, when they went over to the UK. They, it was they had kind of a, a lukewarm reception for some reason and um i think if they had toured and tried again and kept going mm -hmm. over there i think it eventually would have worked for them but they just said hey this is where we're big we're big in america let's just stay at home and they basically stayed in north america for the most part for their whole career so yeah you're right it's weird how a band can catch fire somewhere but it doesn't necessarily catch on everywhere. Well, or like like we were talking about the Pretenders before Chrissy Hind, you know, left Ohio and went to the UK. Yeah, <laughs> that's find right. her way and found her guys who became her band. And I mean, it's so interesting that she went over there to do her thing instead the same of same thing happened for Jimi Hendrix. Yes. Yes. Jimi Hendrix went to London and that's when he caught fire. Yeah. So he, he had to leave the country too to to find his audience. So it, it's happened to some of the greats, for sure. Yeah. Well, and also for a lot of black artists as well, you know, it was harder to, to make inroads in this country at the time. And so many of them went, and in fact, many of the great jazz artists, I think of uh, Josephine Baker and Dexter Gordon, you know, going to France, you know, and they, and, and that's where they, that's where they hit a big, same with Jimmy in, uh, in London, really took off. And so many of the artists there, many of the of the of the uk artists at the time they fell in love with jimmy you know this man who did this, oh my god oh he's amazing you know yeah, and, then, right. and then it really took off there and then and then because of that success in the uk then became huge here you know as he should have been here right and, uh, right but that's so interesting that the cars didn't didn't light up europe and the uk at the time and they were really very much an american band because they're iconic to me they are an iconic american band i interviewed greg hawks for my book and and he was talking about that and you know they had all of a sudden exploded onto the scene and they're like we've made it and then they went to europe and were scratching their heads going huh <laughs> no one really knows us here what's going on 
So yeah, it's interesting. Hey, I want to throw one side note in quick because yeah. it just popped into my head. You had asked me a little bit earlier about what Captain Swing songs made it into the Cars yeah. and that Cars repertoire. Yes. Bye Bye Love was the song that I couldn't think of when you first asked me that. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of Cars fans, Cars enthusiasts who kind of follow what I'm doing and follow what I do with the book. And they're going to hear this <laughs> and go, Joe, what are you talking about? So I had to make sure for them <laughs> that I mentioned Bye Bye Love. So, okay, I'm coming. You don't, you don't want these people going, come on, man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I've been really lucky. Um, you know, going back to the book a little bit, if I, if I may. Um, yeah, please. My, the writing of this book was really interesting. And I've told some interviewers this, and they would say, really, Joe, are you exaggerating a little there? Um, but I literally worked on this book for 10 years. Of course, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say that, you know, I sat in my office every day for eight or 10 hours, you know, typing away at this manuscript. There wasn't you know, like bringing a, you coffee. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, I got a full-time job. I do other freelance writing. I have a family. So it was just a spare time thing. Um, but obviously, and unfortunately, um, Ben had passed away before yes, I started doing this book. He passed away in 2000 um, from pancreatic cancer. And it was about seven years or so after that, that I actually started this book. So if you can't interview the man himself, what's the next best thing to do? You have to interview as many people as you can who knew him. Right. So that was kind of the method I took in writing this book. And I ended up interviewing over 120 people who knew him. And that basically makes up this book. I kind of consider myself like, I kind of just drove the bus down the road and I let all these people tell their stories. Um, I've had people tell me it almost reads like a documentary because I just kind of, I mean, of course I add in information and stuff that I research and gather too, but I essentially let the people who knew him tell his story because they know better than me because they knew him. Right. So the interview process, so that alone took a lot of time, but the interview process was really painstaking because um, another thing I haven't mentioned yet was that Ben Orr was a very private person. Like you see Ben on stage and you see this, you know, good looking rock star, all confident, dressed to the nines. He really wasn't like that off stage. Right. Um, I describe it as he used to flip a switch to go on stage and be a rock star. Yeah. And when he came off stage, he was actually a very quiet, and reserved kind of person. He didn't um, seek out the spotlight. If you see interviews of the band when they were in their heyday, he really doesn't say much. He kind yeah, of sits he's in very the background. Yeah. I mean, if he gets asked a specific question, of sure. course he answers it, but he doesn't offer a lot. So he was a very private guy. So going on that premise, as I would introduce myself to these people who knew him, they had that in the back of their mind. And they would like, does Ben really want his story told? Or, you know, who are you, this hole-in-the-wall writer from Vermont? I don't know who you are. What are you going to say about my buddy Ben or, you know, my relative, the person I loved, you know, who's not here anymore? Um, I don't know what you're going to say about him. So in a lot of cases, I had to convince these people. Yeah. I had to gain their trust. And some of them wouldn't even be in the book unless I showed them exactly 
what was going to be in there. So for a lot, I mean, I did phone interviews too, but a lot of interviews were done through email. So I'd say, okay, just let me send you some questions and you respond to them. And then I'll work up the excerpt that's going to end up in the manuscript. And when I finish that excerpt, I will show it to you so you can read it and then you can change it, edit it, add things, take things out. And we'll make it exactly the way you want it before it goes in the manuscript. That was, I've talked to other authors and told them what they pro, my process was. And they'd look at me and go, are you nuts? You're, you're letting these people dictate what, well, if it's either that or they don't go in the book. Well, the other thing that it, I think it says something about Ben Orr that his friends and family, they were very concerned about protecting his legacy. No and question. I mean, that says something about the man himself. No question. I, I'm not, I'm, this is the, this is the God honest truth. Some of these interviews literally took six months. I'd send someone questions, you know, a week or two later, they'd send responses. I'd have to go through it all, find a way to work it into the manuscript, send those excerpts back to them. They would edit them. And we'd go back and forth and back. And, you know, it's not like I send them to someone and like the next day I get them back. I would, I'd get, I'd, at one point I had about 30 interviews going on all at once. And whenever somebody sent something back to me, that's what I would work on. And I would go back and forth and back and forth with these people seemingly forever. What, what <laughs> and was, that's why what, it took so long. What, what was the most surprising thing that you learned about Ben? through the course of all these interviews? You know, I've been asked this a few times and I think that something that, something that surprised me besides what I just told you about him really being the opposite off stage as what he was on stage. Um, there's a few things, you know, and they all kind of tie together. The fact that even though he was a rock star, he, he didn't have a huge ego. Right. You know, he didn't walk around, look at me, I'm Ben Orr. Right. Um, he was when I, <laughs> Yeah. Um, and, and believe me, people were drawn to him all the time. That guy couldn't For go sure. anywhere without fans flocking to him. Um, some of his friends in the early days said that Ben was a really loyal guy, and especially to his hometown of Cleveland, He's a guy who never forgot where he came from. And when the cars made it big, whenever they toured through the Cleveland area, he would call up all his friends that, you know, he either went to school with them when they were really young or if they were in bands with him in his early days, he would call them up and say, I'm coming into town, get ready. He would get them tickets to the show, backstage passes, send limos over to their house to pick them up. Um, get him t-shirts and tour books and they'd go out to dinner and he wouldn't let any of them spend a dime. I talked to one of his friends who I actually am still friends with after this book came out and stuff. Uh, his name is Wayne Weston and he was the drummer in the Grasshoppers with Ben. And he tells me, Joe, I kid you not, in the whole time I knew Ben Orr, he never let me buy anything. He wouldn't even let me buy a pack of gum at the store. <laughs> He said, Ben was just the most generous, trustworthy type of guy you could ever meet. And, you know, I mean, there's a lot of people like that in this world, I know. But um, just hearing these stories, and you know what? I know it's genuine because here's another thing. 
I interviewed people that knew him when he was 13. I knew people, you know, when he was trying to become famous, but wasn't famous yet. And after he became a rock star and they, and he didn't change the same people tell me these things, whoever I interviewed and whatever they knew Ben, whatever time period of his life that they knew him, they all said the same thing. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't just, it was before he became a rock star and after he became a rock star. Yeah. You know, when he bought a house and the, when the band made it big and they got their first big advance, he went and bought a house outside of Boston. And I interviewed one of his neighbors and she told me that, and Ben was like, he had a sports car, you know, but he also drove trucks. He was, a, he drove a pickup truck. And she told me that in the wintertime after a snowstorm, he had a plow on the front of his truck. He would drive up and down the street and snow plow people's driveways just to do it. And they would try to give him, he wouldn't take money from anyone. He goes, oh, no, no, I'm just doing it. So he kind of did that for fun. I mean, what kind yeah. of a rock star drives up and down the street in his neighborhood snow plowing for people? I mean, that's kind of unique, don't you think? <laughs> well, and the other thing that's super, super sweet is that even though he passed away in 2000, in 2018, uh, when the cars were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland, he was, yeah. he was inducted as a car. Yeah, I was at that ceremony. I went to Cleveland um, and I was at the ceremony and he, Ben is only the second native Clevelander to ever be elected into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So who's the, who's the other one? Um, Bobby Womack. Oh yeah. Bobby Womack is, and I was actually, I actually was corrected because for a while when I started doing these interviews, when my book came out, I was saying that Ben was the only one, but I ended up being wrong. I can't even remember who now, but somebody sent me an email out of the blue and said, no, Joe, he's the second. So, but I'm trying to remember what band Bobby Womack was in. It, it escapes me at the moment, but the second native Clevelander, so talk about coming full circle. Yeah, yeah. That, that whole thing was amazing. And you know, um, when, he got a, when, he, when the band got inducted in 2018, I had a book deal, but the book hadn't been officially released yet. Mm -hmm. But I went to Cleveland and I got to participate like the day before they have a media day in the main lobby of the Rock Hall. So mm -hmm. I got to go to that. I got some media credentials and I went to the media day at the Rock Hall and I got to sit down with some different radio stations and local newspapers. And I got to promote the book a little bit um, before the ceremony. Mm -hmm. And um, that was a pretty amazing thing to take part in. Yeah. It was really cool. I mean, the fact that you were there on site where it was happening right then, and then you could, you have had this offering. And yeah. I, I did also want to ask you about, um, you know, talking about, promoting music and supporting music, especially local and regional, standing room only. Tell me about that. Standing room only is a website that I launched, oh boy, about five or six years ago, I think, um, somewhere in there. Um, unfortunately, it's down for maintenance at the moment. Um, the company I use to build my website 
um, was going through some changes. So, I, and I don't know any of the, as you know, already know, I'm not a techie kind of person. <laughs> so a friend of, a friend of mine does my website stuff for me. And he told me that it had to go down for a while so they could rebuild a, a new platform. Um, mm -hmm. So it's in the process now. I'm hoping by the beginning of the year, um, mm -hmm. it'll be back up again. Um, but I started this website because as I mentioned, I'm a freelance music journalist and most of the time, well, it's about a 50-50 split. Sometimes, you know, I pitch ideas to publications. Sometimes they say yes, sometimes they say no. And sometimes they give me assignments. But I was finding that there were a lot of things that I wanted to write about and I wasn't finding anywhere. You know, I'd pitch them to different publications and websites and would say, no, 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 and they wouldn't take it. So I finally said, well, I just need to fire up my own website then because I have all these people I want to write about. Um, I know a lot of musicians. I know a lot of, um, I call them almost famous musicians, mm -hmm. incredibly talented people who do release their own music, but they might not have a major label deal. And I like to promote these people because there's a, as I know you know this too, um, there's so many talented musicians out there that don't get heard by everybody just because they don't, they don't get lucky or they don't, they don't fall. A lot of it's, it's a lot of it's luck. You it is happen to get that lucky break. That's what, I, that's what the phrase I was trying to think of. Well, and the music industry is so different now than it was before. I mean, we have friends who, who play with, you know, like, Dolly Parton and, you know, uh, and played with, you know, all kinds of huge, huge people. Right. But they're, but, but they're driving Uber to pay their bills. Yeah. And it's like what, you know, know, it doesn't make any sense. And so the fact, that's why I wanted to mention this um, standing room only, because I think it's so important that people recognize that the music industry has changed. It's not what, and also the money, um, people used to be able to make a lot of money in the music industry as artists. Um, but now, you know, uh, not so much, you know, Yeah, the whole record record sales is, it's not even really existent anymore. There's right. hardly any more record stores. Everything's digital download. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I mean, that, that's a good right. thing, but you know, uh, you're, you're, your rock bands aren't selling millions and millions of albums anymore. Right. It's just so different now. So with my website, I try to mix it up. I, I love writing about, you know, national artists and famous artists that I come in contact with, but I also have a local flavor to it as well. So I kind of mix it up. So if someone goes to my website, um, if they're not somebody that's in my local area, and might not be interested in somebody I know here in town. There's also national articles and stuff that I write right. about. And I write about rock photographers and things like that too. It's not mm -hmm. just musicians. And, you know, I mentioned earlier that I was an artist too, way back when, or pretended to be one. <laughs> You're still an artist, Joe. You're still an artist. <laughs> I swear I have a couple of my assignments matted and framed on my living room wall. <laughs> so that makes me an artist. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I kind of mix it up. It's a mix of local and national stuff. Mm -hmm. And when I can't find somebody else to take something I want to write about, I write it myself. And there's no restrictions. There's no deadlines. Um, I write for a couple of publications that limit, limit me in word count. 
So on my website, if I want to write a 10,000 word article and include 30 pictures, I could. That's right. So that's what I love about it. I can do what I want when I want and promote whoever I want. So it's really been a cool outlet for me. And it's not really, this is, I don't do it for money. I do offer um, sponsorship ads mm-hmm. and it's really inexpensive. You know, I give a, somebody an ad for a year for very minimal amount of money. So basically I just make enough money off the ads just to sort of pay for the site. So I don't, I don't do it for money. I do it because I love to write and I want to promote music in the arts. And if I can't find someone else who wants to publish it for me, I just do it myself. Well, and one of the things I think that's uh, really wonderful about this is that if there are people who come to that site to read about, you know, national acts or whatever, they may also see on your page, oh, here are these other people that they'd never yeah. heard of before. And then they can, they can uh, get to know these other smaller artists who are just as talented, like you said, but they, they're not on a major, you know, record label, or maybe they're local and they're top-notch musicians, but nobody's heard of them. So it's a great way to mix that up. Yeah, I love, I love Boston. Um, you know, even though Boston is considered a major city, um, it's not a huge city like right. New York City right, or right. Los Angeles. And there's a really incredible community of musicians and music in Boston. And over the years, I've become acquaintances with some of these musicians. And they, they still do live shows. They put out their own music maybe not necessarily a lot of people know about them. And I really love to write about those guys and girls um, who are just so talented and they deserve to get the ink and they Mm -hmm. deserve to be known. And I really try my best to help promote them as much as I can. Wow. Well, we've, we've, we've kind of come full circle. This has been fantastic and talking about Ben Orr and, 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 uh, and I will put on the, on the, the little um, intro blurb thingy, all the stuff about the book and, um, and your other um, links and stuff like that. So people can find you and uh, so they can buy the book because I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I can't wait to read it. <laughs> it's going to be fantastic. Well, thank Well, just to let people know, um, if anybody is interested in the book and they want to take a closer look, I do have a website specifically for the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, you know, there's some excerpts from the book and there's yeah. some photos and a few That's testimonials. That's one of the links I have. I have also your Amazon, uh, your Amazon page too. Oh, cool. Well, it's a real easy link. Um, it's www.benorbook.com. Can't get much simpler than that. So people can go to the website and check it out. And if they want to get the book, there's a link there where they can order it. I also have a Facebook page that's dedicated to the book. So if someone goes to Facebook and just go to the search bar and type in, let's go, it'll pop up and you can send me a message there too. I have copies here in my office that some people come directly to me so I can personalize a book for them. I have a couple little extra book promotional goodies that I throw in with the package. So some people come directly to me too. So it's been a lot of fun. Ah, uh, it's wonderful. Thank you so much for, for finding me on social media through Fuzzby. And uh, this yeah. has been so great. This is so great. You know, you know, a lot of people say some bad things about Facebook. And I guess maybe some bad things can happen on Facebook. But so many good things happen on Facebook. How would I have ever connected with you? If I didn't see your post on Facebook, that's and right. I meet, I've, I've met like 
kids that I went to elementary school with that I find on Facebook that I never would have found in a million years. Yeah. So Facebook, if you use it properly, Facebook is really a cool platform. And I'm so glad that we got to meet and chat about the book. I've really had a lot of fun. It's been uh, great. It's been great. And I, I can't wait to read it. And it's going to be fantastic. And I can't wait to share it with everybody else. Thanks so much, Joe. Dana, it's been a pleasure talking with you. It's great to meet you. And I hope we can chat again. Absolutely. And Thank that was so my chat with Joe Milliken. How fantastic to be able to speak with someone completely across the country or even across the world and to speak with someone you've never talked to before. A miracle of modern technology. Due to copyright restrictions, we cannot play any Cars music, sadly. So I would like to encourage all of you to go to your local music purveyors, whether that be on the internet or a music store, if you can, if there's one open, and get yourself some Cars from that first album from 1978 or that second album, Candio, from 1979. Really amazing stuff that was ahead of its time. And I'm going to go down that YouTube rabbit hole and enjoy me some cars today. So until next time, take good care of each other, take good care of yourselves, and I'll see you on the other side.